Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Yes, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. You know, if you've been listening for any length of time, you know that I, I, I tend to give the bad news first. All right, we'll cover politics or we'll cover, you know, whatever whatever is distasteful. It, kind of in the same sense that as a kid, I learned to eat my vegetables first just because we had to get the unpleasant stuff out of the way. And then I could move on to, you know, the more delectable parts of whatever meal I was eating. You know, ultimately, you know, working my way towards dessert. But I always saved the best for last. So I'm going to break tradition here. <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm going to go ahead and start with dessert just because uh, a friend posted a story on Facebook. And I don't think this is necessarily his story. It looks it looks like it might be a cut and paste, but it is such a good story. I thought, man, I want to I want to share this with you, because if, if you were just, you know, whether you're just starting your day or right in the middle of things, there's a very good chance something unexpected is going to happen to you today. And how that affects your day is largely going to be up to you. What I mean is, um, look, we live in an imperfect world. And so there's uh, there's a lot of human fallibility that's built into everything we do from the cars we drive to our jobs to dealing with other people, whatever it may be. But when something goes wrong. If we latch on to some negative vibe and then we let that carry us on through the rest of the day, it has kind of a tendency to cascade. And, and you know, suddenly this is the worst day ever. I'm sure you've experienced this. I know I have. In fact, it's something I still struggle with. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this, but, uh, you know, last week we had two flat tires, different cars, but two flat tires in a week. And I'm telling you, when, when I saw the second one and I, I realized there's a nail sticking in the tire, you would have thought I was starring in a Greek tragedy for the way I react. Oh, life is so hard. Why? Why? All the tire shops are closed. And, and I, I look back now and I think that was really dumb. <laughs> I mean, it was a flat tire. What, uh, what can I say? By the way, I will give props to, uh, to Volkswagen. I got to tell you, as far as, uh, you know, the spare tire, the jack and the tools to change a flat, that's the best system I have ever seen. It was it was a little counterintuitive. The jack was one of those uh, scissor jacks, and it was a little bit strange. It didn't look like any jack I'd ever used before. But in the end, that was the simplest, easiest, most trouble-free tire change I have ever had to do. So props, Volkswagen. Good job. All right, here's the story I want to share with you. It's called Rear End Collision. My friend posted this. The story says, my wife was just rear-ended in a car collision. Now, he says, let me start this personal message by saying this. Don't worry, she's fine. But the incident also forced me to take a look at myself and made me realize why I'm so proud of her. A run-of-the-mill stoplight rear-ending. My wife pulled up, stopped, but the lady behind her didn't. So the crash occurred. He says, when my wife told me about it on the phone, my first instinct was to get mad. She was probably texting something. Right? I yelled. And his wife said, can you stop for a second and just let me tell you what happened? She had a much more level-headed tone. She went on to tell him that as she exited the vehicle, the lady who'd hit her was noticeably agitated. Not surprising, right? If, you've ever, if you have ever rear-ended anybody, I promise you, for 99% of people, a cuss word is the first thing that comes out of your mouth when it happens. It's, it, you know you screwed up. It's, it's not a good feeling. 
But this guy's wife noticed that the woman who had hit her was a cancer patient undergoing chemo. Furthermore, she noticed a cross on the woman's window. So before she could escalate the situation any further, his wife asked this woman, are you okay? The first thing she did was check on the other woman. He says, not her own car. She checked on the woman and immediately the woman's tone changed and she became less angry and more apologetic. The woman said, look, I wasn't texting or anything. It's just chemo brain. I was distracted. I'm so sorry. Listen to what his wife said. She said, accidents happen. I notice you have a cross on your window. This is what being a Christian is. What kind of Christians would we be if we just screamed and raged at each other all the time over accidents? Completely disarmed, he said the woman broke down into tears, clutching my wife as they stood there on the shoulder of the road, hugging each other. And then the woman proceeded to tell his wife her story. He says she told my wife about her cancer treatments, about losing her fiance, about how hard it had been and how cancer was actually the best thing that had ever happened to her because it brought her back to God after she had long lost her way. Along with the insurance information exchanged, he says my wife made sure to get the lady's personal info, promising that we would be praying for her. So finally, the police officer arrived on the scene, surprised, to put it mildly. He said usually people aren't hugging and laughing with a car in that kind of shape. He said, I've never seen anything like it. Now, the officer was touched as well, simply because he saw this display of humanity in a context where most people would lose their humanity. Once all the information was exchanged and the reports were filed, everybody went on their merrily way, or their merry way, rather. Now, think about this for a second. That entire situation could have been wildly different had people's perceptions and reactions been different. He says, my wife could have flown into a rage. The other woman could have been uncooperative. The police officer could have been on a curt power trip. But instead, an unfortunate car accident was actually turned into a positive human interaction for everyone involved. It wouldn't be too much to say that uh, for most of them, it turned out to be a blessing in the disguise of uh, hardship. But he says that was entirely due to a choice. Now, maybe I'm just sharing this story because it's, it's primarily for me. Heaven knows I can use it <laughs> because I have a tendency when something goes wrong to, to, uh, to take it personally as if the universe has suddenly aligned itself against me. But it really does come down to a choice. And so here's what I'm committing to do for the day. If this makes sense to you, maybe it's something you should consider as well. Whatever lies ahead on this day, I want to make the conscious choice to turn it to something good. Now, just so I, I want to clarify this, this is not daring the universe. Okay, so hit me with your best shot. That's not what I'm asking for. This is like, you know, please, Lord, give me patience. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I recognize the value in adjusting my attitude. The one thing that I actually have some control over or at least some influence over. I can adjust my attitude and, and hopefully in the process help other people who may also be in a place where, where they wouldn't rather be, or they're in a, you know, in a funk or whatever. I know this is kind of a lofty way to start out. So if I'm, if I'm getting a little too metaphysical for everything, you know, I, my, my apologies, but I read that story and it touched my heart and I thought that's too good not to share. So here I am. I'm sharing it with you and telling you this is, I think this is an important lesson that, that's just too easy for most of us to forget. 
And the thing that really jumps out at me, you know, the, the wife saying, look, this is what being a Christian is. And if you are a Christian, you know, it's it's not easy to <laughs> to live up to your Christian ideals, especially in traffic. The whole do unto others as you would have done unto you kind of goes out the window in favor of do unto others before they can do unto you. Or at least that's that's what it feels like sometimes. So for what it's worth, there it is. Won't be posting it in the show notes on the uh, on the podcast, but uh, I do have some other fun stuff I'm going to share with you. Let's see. We are going to cover in no particular order today. uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the American Old West. And I'm probably going to save this for next hour, so you'll have to grab hour two of the podcast if if you're listening to the podcast or you have to stick around and and listen uh, to the uh, live broadcast. But we're going to talk about the American Old West and how Hollywood made it wild or portrayed it as wild, created this myth in order to make money and actually to advance gun control. It's an excellent article from Ammo.com, and hot on the heels of that, I'm also going to share with you, I I finally found it, I've been looking for this for months, an article called Order Without Law, Anarchy in the Old West. Now, to some people, when I say anarchy, they're thinking, wait a minute, this sounds exactly like the Wild West that you're talking about, but it's a wonderful article I picked up several years ago. Um, It was an interview with an old U.S. Marshal when he was 92 years old, and I think it was way back in the 50s. Uh, When he was interviewed, like 1958, but he talked about the Old West because he lived there. He was a marshal in the Old West. And he talked about how order or how a functioning society existed in places where government was not fully organized and especially where law enforcement hadn't been outsourced to government at that point. And wait until you hear what he has to say. This is going to it's going to rock some people's worlds. So, again, I, I hate to make you wait, but we're going to cover that coming up in the next hour. I just uh, I, I have some other fun stuff ahead of us. We're going to talk about uh, finding truth, how to cut through the media bearer barrier, rather how to cut through the smoke screen. And uh, there, there are a few other things here. Um, if I have time, I'm going to share with you a little uh, observation on Robert Mueller's body language during the hearings. Or the hearing earlier this week. I'll tell you what. After listening to the analysis of his body language, the the one thing I came away with with absolute certainty, I would not want to be married to a body language expert. Holy cow, the stuff she picked up on. I mean, you couldn't even get away with one of those little white lies that you have to tell sometimes just for the sake of domestic tranquility. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for being a part of today's broadcast. You know, one of the interesting things about what I do is I never have a clue how many people are actually listening. Now, I can track the, you know, the podcast downloads and, you know, I, I can't speak strictly for, for this program, but I know as a network, I'd say we're, we're probably somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 downloads every month which, uh, you know, doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, those are respectable numbers. I'm, I mean, we're, we're shooting for, you know, several hundred thousand, a million. <laughs> it would be really nice to be heard and accessed across uh, a much wider uh, variety of, of people's devices and, uh, you know, just people, you know, accessing this here. But 
Growth is a slow process. Nonetheless, I remain convinced that to one of the things that, that, that gives great purpose to everything that I do, and I know that the other hosts on this network feel the same way, is that it is hard to find truth, at least within media. And we're going to talk a little bit about this, about how, you know, you, you hear the term fake news and for a lot of people, whoop, up go the defensive shields. Oh, you know, talking fake news, that's just a Trump talking point. Well, it could be. But there's also a lot of misinformation out there or incomplete information that nonetheless misleads us as completely as misinformation would. So we're going to talk about how to cut through that media smokescreen, how to dismantle that narrative and if you are a truth seeker, by the end of this hour of the program, you're going to have some solid ideas on how to how to be better at uh, apprehending truth. And if you're a truth speaker, hopefully you have some great ideas for how to get around uh, what remains of the gatekeepers, uh, primarily made up of what we call the mainstream or legacy media. So I want to start with something here from. Uh, oh, his name escapes me now. Hang on a second here. It's uh, of two minds. Charles Hugh Smith. Thank you. I was just looking at his blog title going, I I know it's of two minds, but he, he talks about how it's not just the news that's fake. Everything's fake. And he starts by pointing out that we fall for the fakes and cons is understandable, given that's really all that we have left in the public sphere. Now, he says, what do we mean when we say corporate media is fake? We mean it's a carefully crafted con. It's a set of narratives, it's cherry-picked data, and of course heavily massaged statistics like the unemployment rate, for instance, designed to instill the reader's confidence in a narrative that serves the interests not of the citizenry, but of a select few pillaging the citizenry. Now, I like he points out here, once upon a time in America, no adult could survive without a finely tuned BS detector. Herman Melville masterfully captured America's culture of cons and con artists in his 1857 classic, The Confidence Man. Now, an essential component of the American ethos is don't be a chump. Don't fall for the con. And if you do, it's your own fault. America in 1857 was a simmering stew of con artists, flim flammers and grifters exploiting the naive, the trusting and the credulous. And that remains the case in 2019. Charles Hugh Smith says, we now inhabit a world where virtually everything is a con. The organic produce from some other country. Did anybody test the soil that produce grew in? Because it could be loaded with heavy metals and still be certified organic just because it has no pesticides used during its production. Are there any nutrients left in the soil or has it been depleted? For that matter, what's in the water that was used to irrigate the crops? See, the point of the con in offshore organic is the higher prices that it fetches. And that's why it's critical to ask of every narrative, every story, every product, every data set, qui bono, to whose benefit? Let's turn to uh, employment slash unemployment statistics. Charles Hugh Smith says these are obviously a con. 93 million people aren't even counted anymore. In other words, they're statistical zombies no longer among the living workforce. Now, if the unemployment rate were calculated on the number of full-time jobs and the true workforce, basically everybody age 18 to 70, that isn't institutionalized or in prison, our unemployment, our unemployment rate would not be the absurdly delusional 3.7% claimed by bureaucratic con artists. 
kind of makes me wonder what it would be. I don't know if I want to know. Here's another con. Healthy choice snacks. He says, nope, that's fake. They're loaded with the same low-quality ingredients and high-salt content as any good old-fashioned junk food is. How about social media privacy? Fake. We really, really, really keep all your data private. Except for what we sell to marketers for immense profits, which is, well, all of it. Democracy. Fake. The live entertainment of elections sell a lot of ads and enriches the corporate media, but nothing actually changes. The deep state runs the federal government and deep pockets run state and local government. Prosperity. This one's going to sting. Fake. Trillions of dollars in new currency and credit have inflated assets to absurd levels. All to create the illusion that everything's getting better in every way, every day. Now, he actually has a chart to back this up. He says, see this chart of the everything bubble? One million dollars, one million dollar decaying bungalows, stocks at all time highs. You think that's going to go on forever? No. And he points out here that Melville understood that at some level we want to be conned. We want to believe the elixir will make our aches and pains go away. That the new face in politics is going to clear out the rot of corruption. That rising prices for everything means we're all getting richer and so on. Orson Welles' weird and wonderful documentary F for Fake reminds us that a successful fake is essentially identical with the real thing. So the S&P 500 hitting 3,000 means we're all getting more prosperous, right? Yeah. He says, despite all the craftsmanship, though, fake is still fake. And today, virtually everything is fake. It's a con designed to trick or distract the mark, which would be us, from the looting, the plundering and predation of those running the con for their own self-interest. Now that we fall for these fakes and cons is understandable, given that's all that we have left in the public sphere. Sorry, that's not a very hopeful note, is it? I mean, this is like, wow, talk about ending on a, on a high note, something that gives me hope. Whew, you might be feeling a little bit hopeless right now. Okay, well, we'll, we'll see what we can do to turn, to turn that around. Because, look, the, the change is not going to come from the top down. With my apologies to everybody who, you know, believed Trump was placed in the office of president by God himself to save us. No, no, I don't think that's the case. Now, I'm not saying that because Trump is the most evil man or, you know, this Hitler-like dictator just waiting to, to flex his muscles. I don't think that's the case either. My point is simply that this the kind of change that needs to take place here can't happen from the top down. Because the rot that, that permeates our entire system is too far gone. It's too widespread. Any authentic change is going to have to come from the individual through the grassroots level and percolate up to the highest levels. I've said this before, and I still believe you could put the most virtuous individual on the planet. Think of whoever you think is the most virtuous individual, you know, currently alive. Good luck, by the way. <laughs> I'd be hard pressed to think of more than maybe a couple of people who I think would be would be, you know, that level of virtuous. Put them in charge. It still wouldn't change a thing if most people still in their hearts don't understand that, that there is a price that we each have to pay in terms of our personal character. If we want to see things turn around, if we want to slow our descent 
But the first thing we have to learn is how to discern fact from fiction, truth from falsehood, real from fake. So when we come back, we are going to uh, refer to Ron Oons from the Oons Review. He's got a terrific article today on LewRockwell.com called American Pravda, Breaching the Media Barrier. Now, this may sound like hyperbole, but I think he's actually right. The biggest opposing obstacle that we face in trying to either slow our, uh, our decline or to correct course is the mainstream media. It's the disinformation. It's the distractions that keep us from seeing what's really going on because we're too busy fighting like a bunch of little tribes. We'll take a quick break. We'll check news headlines and be back. This is Loving Liberty. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me. By the way, if you want to be part of the conversation, here's the number, 801-331-8113. We are talking about uh, how to overcome the media barrier, which is one of the toughest things for a person who is determined to think clearly and independently about what's going on in our time. I actually saw this great editorial cartoon posted today. A friend of mine, Wendy Kay, had posted this on Facebook, and, and it's just titled, While Everyone's Gaze is Diverted. And you can see a, a picture of Uncle Sam pointing towards all these people protesting with, you know, lots of uh, symbols for curse words floating above them in the air. They're holding banners and signs, abortion, no smoking, non-corporate drugs, gays, sexy movies, street level crimes. And, and this is where all of the media's cameras are. This is where the New York Times is looking. You know, everybody is looking toward that. And just out of the public's view. Out of the media's view is this building with politicians handing bags of money out, stowing them away in car trunks and factories, clear-cut ground, and the, the building is labeled public resources. Now, if this seems a bit too simplistic, uh, let, me, let me just break it down into something that at least makes sense to me. We are being looted while all of our moral energy is being spent fighting among each other on various, web, on various wedge issues. Why do you suppose that is? Well, the short answer, at least to me, is because uh, most of the media attention never covers really what, what could bring accountability to those in, in official positions. The people who hold the levers of power and some of the people who exercise great power without ever having been elected to it. See, the media thinks it's part of that elite. It considers itself a part of the uh, upper crust it doesn't want to jeopardize its relationship. And so it, uh, it serves to tell us what we need to know rather than uh, what we deserve to know, which is give us the facts, leave out the labels, let us make up our own minds what is most important. But we're all distracted by abortion and gays and sexy movies and things like that. Let's talk about Ron Oon's article American Pravda, Breaching the Media Barrier. He says, a couple of years ago, I launched my Oons Review, providing a wide range of different alternative perspectives, the vast majority of them totally excluded from the mainstream media. 
Now, he's also published a number of articles in his own America Pravda series or American Pravda series, focusing on the suspicious lapses and lunacy in the media narratives. For those who don't know, Pravda, I believe, you know, if you speak Russian, you can correct me on this, but I think Pravda directly translated means truth. That's one of those things, like, if you, if you have to, this is truth, <laughs> trust me, well, you know, then, then there's probably something wrong. It's like the person who keeps insisting over and over, look, I'm honest, I'm honest, I'm an honest person. If they have to keep telling you about it, if it's not something you can see by their actions, or you notice their words and actions line up beautifully like an honest person's would, then, uh, yeah, there's probably a problem. But these are some of the things that Ron Oons has observed, and I think these are worth considering. Number one, he says the mainstream media is the crucial opposing force. Groups advocating policies opposed by the American establishment need to recognize that the greatest obstacle they face is typically going to be mainstream media. Ordinary political and ideological opponents, yeah, they exist, but these are usually inspired, motivated, organized, and assisted by powerful media support which also shapes the perceived framework of the conflict. In Clausewitzian terms, the media often constitutes the the strategic center of gravity in the opposing forces. Now, look, not all media is made in the same mold here. So I I don't want to make it sound like, you know, they're all marching in lockstep. There are differences. But those differences often are few and far between. There, there's a remarkable consensus, and it's not necessarily even on, on the talking points so much as the limits of what media is willing to cover. And this applies to Fox News just as well as it applies to CNN. Tom Woods often refers to the 3 by 5 index card of approved opinion. These are the things we're allowed to talk about. And we're not supposed to stray out of there. And if we do, well, <laughs> out comes the accusations of you're this tinfoil hat wearing, you know, conspiracy theorist. That's supposed to marginalize you. And it's supposed to signal to other people. Don't listen. Hey, citizen, pay no attention to what this man is saying. Are you to the point where you can look past those kinds of uh, frantic declarations? Because the only reason they exist is because someone wants you to stay within the boundaries of approved opinion. Next, Un says the media should be made a primary target. He says if the media is the crucial force empowering the opposition, then it should be regarded as a primary target of any political strategy. So long as the media remains strong, success may be difficult. But he says if the influence and credibility of the media were substantially degraded, then the ordinary opposing forces would lose much of their effectiveness. In many respects, the media creates reality, so perhaps the most effective route towards changing reality runs through the media. Now, this means discrediting the media anywhere will weaken it everywhere. He says the mainstream media exists as a seamless whole, so weakening or discrediting the media in any particular area automatically reduces its influence elsewhere as well. The elements of the media narrative faced by a particular anti-establishment group may be too strong and well defended to attack effectively. And any such attacks might also be discounted as, well, that's just ideologically motivated. Hence, the more productive strategy may be sometimes an indirect one, attacking the media narrative elsewhere at points where it's much weaker and much less well defended. In addition, winning those easier battles may generate greater credibility and momentum, which could then be applied to later attacks on more difficult fronts. Now, I would give you an example of what this looks like here. During the coverage of the Bundy trial, 
there was quite a bit of media coverage. And, and actually, it was interesting to watch how that mainstream media interest swelled when it became clear this wasn't going to be a slam dunk for the government prosecutors. In fact, if anything, the case was being turned around and they found themselves the object of, you know, scrutiny and denouncement. And, and rightly so. But as the as the media and I'm going to, you know, people like Maxine Bernstein from the Oregonian and and I forget the guy's name, Ryan from the Southern Poverty Law Center, as as they were putting out their narrative, as they were trying to maintain the well, you know, of course, the government is right here and the Bundys did do all this bad stuff that we say they were doing as that started falling apart like a soup sandwich. Guess where people were turning to get a more complete view of what was happening? They were turning to independent, grassroots people going through social media in many cases. John Lamb, tirelessly down there covering it all the time. Vincent Easley. Kelly Stewart. Myself. And the cool thing about it was that it actually got to the point where they started, the mainstream media actually started turning to us. Because we were able to get information in some cases earlier and in many cases more accurately than they were able to get. I knew we had something good going on when I saw the NPR article about, well, there's uh, there's two different universes here. Why? There's the 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 respectable legacy media. And then there's this grassroots media in quotation marks. Who are these people? Who do they think they are? But there we were reporting on the day's proceedings from the courtroom and and putting the truth out there for people to examine. And pretty soon you start seeing the the numbers of people accessing the videos that we were putting out, uh, getting up there in the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands. What that indicates is there are people who are sincerely looking for truth or they're sincerely looking for a more complete understanding of what's going on. And that's something the media was not providing. And the first time that, uh, that I saw a mainstream media source start quoting some of us alternative media sources or grassroots media sources, I took it as a huge compliment as, wow, this is actually having impact. But we didn't go after them head on. We just did kind of an end run around them, and they had no choice but to, to acknowledge, hey, um, here, here's what they're reporting. <laughs> Oh, the distaste on their faces. The last day of the trial. The courtroom was packed, as you can as you can imagine, because uh, the the judge, it was anticipated she was going to dismiss the case. And she did. But the the waiting line, you know, a good hour before anybody could even go into the courtroom, the waiting line was you know clear down the hall. There was probably 150 people outside there. And that, that courtroom can only accommodate about 96 uh, spectators. So fortunately, I had I had got my press credentials from my editor at that time and uh, went and sat on the press bench. And, you know, I, I was one of the early ones there, so I didn't see a lot of the reporters there at that time. But as soon as the reporter showed up, it wasn't a couple minutes later. I had a U.S. marshal right there. Uh, can I see your credentials? Showed him my credentials. OK, no problem. But the look of distaste on some of these journalists faces. What the heck are you doing sitting there? They knew darn well that I, I was, uh, you know, doing, I was part of the alternative media. But it just really, it, it raised the hair on a few of their heads to, to see me sitting there on their bench, the legitimate, respectable bench, along with other people like Sherry Davali and others. Yeah, I still savor that just a little bit. My point here is there were alternatives and we took them. We'll come back with more of Mr. Unz's 
Advice on breaching the media barrier right after these messages. Trading in Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm sharing with you an article by Ron Oons on the Oons Review. It's actually published on LewRockwell.com today as well about uh, American Pravda breaching the media barrier. You want the truth? Well, excellent, because I believe that you can handle the truth. <laughs> Not exactly what you were expecting, right? Ron Oon says a broad alliance may actually support the common goal of me- of weakening the media. He says once we recognize that weakening the media is a primary strategic goal, an obvious corollary is that other anti-establishment groups facing the same challenges become natural, even if temporary, allies. Such unexpected tactical alliances may be drawn across a wide range of different political and even ideological perspectives, meaning... You could have people in your coalition that are left, right, or otherwise, and despite the component groups having longer-term goals that may even be conflicting or orthogonal, so long as all such elements in the coalition recognize that the hostile media is their most immediate adversary, then they can cooperate on their common effort, even while actually gaining additional credibility and attention by the fact that they sharply disagree on so many other matters. He says the media is enormously powerful and exercises control over a vast expanse of intellectual territory. But such ubiquitous influence also ensures that its local adversaries are therefore numerous and widespread, all by being bitterly opposed to the hostile media they face on their own particular issues. So by analogy, a large, powerful empire is frequently brought down by a broad alliance of many disparate, disparate rather, uh, rebellious factions, each having unrelated goals, which together overwhelmed the imperial defenses by attacking simultaneously at multiple different locations. Now, he says a a, a crucial aspect enabling such a rebel alliance is the typically narrow focus of each particular constituent member. Most groups or individuals opposing establishment positions tend to be ideologically zealous about one particular issue or maybe a small handful of issues while being less interested in others. Given the total suppression of their views at the hands of the mainstream media, any venue in which their unorthodox perspectives are provided a reasonably fair and equal treatment, rather than ridiculed and denigrated, tends to inspire considerable enthusiasm and loyalty on their part. That makes sense. So although they may have quite conventional views on most other matters, causing them to regard contrary views with the same skepticism or unease as might anyone else, They'll usually be willing to suppress their criticism at such wider heterodoxy as long as other members of their alliance are willing to return that favor on their own topics of primary interest. I like to refer to this as the with one voice principle. Sure, we all have different points of view and they're all we all have different priorities and different things that matter to us. But the goal should be to find those areas of overlap where we have those common interests, where it's essential that even if we disagree on this issue or that issue, we should be able to agree on this one. And great things happen when we're able to come together with one voice, even with groups that that don't agree with us perfectly on other matters. We don't see it happen often enough, but, but it can definitely happen. Now, there's more to this article, um, how to how to reframe conspiracy theories as effective media criticism. How to attack the media narrative where it's weak, not where it's strong. 
the advantage of flooding media defense zones? I highly recommend this article. I will have a link to it in the uh, in the show notes of the podcast. But I think this is this is worth it. And, and look, you may be thinking, OK, well, that's fine, but I'm not a member of the media. So why don't you become one? And I'm not being facetious when I when I suggest that. How hard is it to start a blog for crying out loud? Go to WordPress. You don't even have to pay. I'm sorry, Blogspot. Uh, you don't even have to pay to, to start your own blog. You can start a podcast for minimal costs. Don't wait until it's perfect. Don't wait until it's, well, it's got to be, you know, network quality before I do anything with it. No, start, grow it, learn as you go. See, this is a lot different than fake it till you make it. Learn as you go, but start flexing your intellectual muscles. Start using your voice right now where you stand. It's never been easier. I want to touch on one other aspect here, and that's how to live through a time of truth deficiency. If there was anything that uh, that we're facing today, I think there's a there's a strong truth deficiency. We've long understood that, uh, you know, speaking of nutrition, that a deficiency in certain nutrients or vitamins can have a very serious consequence on our health. Now, fortunately, over time, mankind has discovered that formerly common diseases can be corrected simply if you're getting enough of the right vitamins. So simple things like citrus fruits or sunlight or fresh vegetables have made things like scurvy and rickets and pellagra virtually unknown in modern society. But even with this knowledge, people who give little thought to what they consume still tend to encounter unexpected health consequences more often than the people whose diets reflect a very conscientious effort to eat wisely. And there's a similar dynamic that we can see in the effects of what we prefer to consume intellectually. Uh, For example, how many of us know people who spend an inordinate amount of time obsessing over whatever is leading the current media news cycle? Now, look, I could be talking about myself here since (laughs) there's a lot of the stuff I talk about that's that's part of what's on top of the news cycle. But I'm talking about whether it's outrage over the president's tweets or the latest government shutdown or some other event dominating the headlines. We all know people who live in a constant state of indignation. Now, what they're feeling may be real, but they're allowing themselves to become emotionally invested in things that actually have little to no tangible effect on their lives. And rather than engaging in the kind of personal actions that could actually have have measurable impact on the world around them, they choose to become passive complainers and end up just regurgitating whatever media content they've been consuming. A steady diet of mass media sound bites is just not balanced enough to provide us with the kind of mental and spiritual nourishment that allows us to be problem solvers. And because of this, there are a lot of people out there suffering from a form of truth deficiency. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not saying that they are stupid. I'm not saying that they lack character. I'm just acknowledging that there are very few people today in the habit of seeking the truth. And that's somewhat understandable when you consider that it requires effort and commitment in order to obtain truth. And most people just aren't prepared to endure the the fatigue of developing their understanding and learning how to think clearly and independently. It's hard work. Okay, there, there is no shortcut. So it becomes easier to just take our cues, usually in the form of simplified slogans from highly paid media figures who tell us what or whom to fear. They tell us what to regard as important. They tell us what our attitudes ought to be. But they're not doing it to help us become informed, active citizens. 
What they're doing is they're spoon-feeding us a kind of intellectual gruel that's been flavored with hype and sensationalism and titillation and then garnished with just a splash of, a splash of blood. And the long-term effects of consuming this on a daily basis include a much higher susceptibility to fear, anger, and guilt, which are marvelous tools for manipulating people if that's your design. Now, if we're serious about seeing the world as it really is, and if we're, if we're serious about making a difference, we have to be willing to take ownership of the need to seek after truth at an individual level. And that can be tough for a number of reasons. Number one, researching, studying, and vetting information requires a fairly serious investment of time, and that's a luxury that very few of us enjoy. Our leisure time, meaning the discretionary time we have outside of providing for our needs, should encompass more than just simply play or rest. People who are making a difference, and I don't care at what level, are the people who are using, using their leisure time to better themselves and their understanding. So I have a couple of suggestions about how to overcome truth deficiency and to keep it at bay. If you watch mass media, if you have to watch it, pay close attention to stories or issues that elicit strong emotional responses. Knowing how to ask the right questions is of greater value than simply knowing the right answer. And it's also a good idea to get in the habit of asking yourself, does this story genuinely affect my life or am I just giving someone else power over my emotions? It's also helpful to consider exactly who stands to benefit from the way that a particular story is being presented. You may want to ask, is the person telling me this information paying a price for speaking truth? Typically, the kinds of sources that can be trusted are the people who have skin in the game, and this is important, who are willing to suffer in order to speak the truth. Those who have nothing at stake and who seem to be immune to the consequences of their words are the ones more likely to engage in deception. A good rule of thumb is whether the source is more concerned about gaining the approval of others or more concerned about speaking the truth, even when it's unpopular to do so. Disinformation and fake news are the new normal. Individuals who speak unpopular truths are routinely treated with hostility and distrust. So we should be asking questions like, how much do I really know about this person or issue that hasn't been told to me by someone else? And if the answer is very little, then we need to be careful about hanging our hat on it. See, not everyone prizes truth, but those who do had better be capable of recognizing it, defending it, and then sharing it freely. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 